the blessings given to believers through the death and resurrection of Christ are so incredible that they almost defy comprehension. I mean, let's think about it together. As believers, we have been given eternal salvation. We've been given friendship with God. We've been given the right to become children of God. We've been given all the promises of Abraham. We've been given all the glories of Jesus' kingdom. And these blessings are just to name a few. It is true that all of these promises given to us in Christ are phenomenal. They're phenomenal. But isn't it also true that very often, though we might know these promises are true, we don't really feel like they're true. I don't know about you, but very often my spiritual life feels stale, stuck in neutral. And when I start to reflect on my sin and my failures, I start to think that surely these promises are not for me. Anybody else ever feel that way? Thankfully, in addition to all the promises I just stated, God has promised believers something else. Something that will make the reality of all God has for us come alive in our hearts. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians is probably about two-thirds of the way through the New Testament. If you have your Bibles, if you don't, it's, it's on the screen and it's also at ljc.life. Let's look at Galatians chapter 4. We'll look at verses 1 through 7. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says in verse 1, What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also 
and heir. Let's pray together. Father, what a hopeful word this is. Please give me the strength to present it clearly and effectively and compellingly. It's the only way, Father, that this should be preached. What a word and what a promise we have. We pray, Father, that your spirit would be in this room and move in every single heart that is here so that we might be able to cling to these glorious truths, not just tonight, but every day of our lives from this day forward. And it's in your precious Son's name we pray. Amen. Paul shows us four things here. Four things. He shows us why we need the promise, what is promised, what the promise is like, and how it comes. Why we need the promise, what is promised, what the promise is like, and how it comes. Number one, why we need the promise. Let's look at verses one through three. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Before Christ came, all of mankind was in bondage to the law, or as Paul called it, the guardian. But once Christ came, he set us free. And now we are no longer under the law, but under grace. We're under grace. But here's the only problem. We still want to go back to the law. We want our good works to justify us. We want to earn our keep. And this is true of Christians and non-Christians. The desire to be justified by works is the default mode of the human heart. And this is the reason why we often feel like God is not near to us and why his promises don't seem real. This is what was happening to the Galatians. They began to doubt their status as God's children and were returning to the moral law to find assurance and comfort. Now, Paul introduces an interesting concept here when he says in verse 3, do you notice he says that we used to be under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. What on earth is Paul talking about here? The elemental spiritual forces of the world. Well, very simply, the elements of the world here refer to all the things men use to justify themselves. All the things men and women use to justify themselves, either before God or before other men. Now, this could be 
all kinds of things. This could be God's law. This could be religious tradition. This could be church membership. It could be tithing. It could be serving. Uh, or it could be financial success. It could be education, astrology, science, philosophy. I mean, etc., etc. It could literally be anything in the universe. This is what Paul is saying here. And what Paul is saying is, here's his main point, that apart from Christ, all of those things in the universe will enslave us. They will enslave us if we give ourselves to them. And so he's saying that all attempts to justify ourselves apart from Christ are elementary approaches. They're a children's, a child's attempt at justification. Because of sin, man has no idea how to approach God. They have no clue how to approach Him. And so they try all of these childish things. I know I did. All these childish things. But, incredibly, simply belief Belief in the death and resurrection of Christ releases men from the law and from every other elemental approach to God. It frees us and it gives us full justification before God on the basis of faith alone. How freeing this is. In Christ, we are no longer slaves to the law or to all these other things we've tried. We are no longer slaves to the things of this world. We are children of the Most High King. Now, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we can trash all of the elementary approaches we used to use to try to justify ourselves, and we can simply rest in Christ. Rest in what he has done for us rather than stress about what we must do for him. But, but, again, it's really hard for us to do this. It's really hard. Even the most mature Christians will return. They will return back to good works for assurance and comfort. When we feel insecure about our standing with God, we fall back on our church attendance or our giving record and things like that. This is actually one of the most important points from the parable of the prodigal son. It's easy to miss this point, but it's an awesome one. If you know the story, the prodigal returns to the father. But he returns with works righteousness. He says, Father, I know I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But if you'll just let me work for you, if you'll just let me work for you, I'll earn my way forward and I'll justify my existence. And look, this is the tendency of all believers when we approach God. We have the status 
of sons, but we have the mindset of slaves, of hired servants. So, we need some help. And help is on the way. Which brings us to point number two. What is promised? Look at verse six. What is promised? Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The promise Paul refers to here is the experience of sonship. The experience of sonship. Now, Jesus himself, of course, is a glorious promise given to us by the Father. But Jesus often talked about another promise that was to come, given to us also by the Father. Namely, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And his role is critical. It's critical. You see, Jesus went outside to make us sons of God. But the Spirit goes inside to make us experience being sons of God. Yes, Jesus won our victory in our place, paving the way for us to become children of God. But now the Spirit's job is to make that reality come alive in our hearts. One way to explain the point is like this. You can claim what the Son does. You can claim what the Son does. But you can experience what the Spirit does. You can experience it. For example, as a Christian, if you're feeling down or anxious or ashamed or far from God, or stale, or just numb. You can claim what the Son does. You can say to yourself, I am a blood-bought child of the King, and I am of infinite value and worth to God. And those things are 100% true. And that is a right and wonderful thing for us to do. It's wonderful. And we'll flesh this out more in just a minute. But you see, when you do this, you're making a claim based on the work of Christ. Right? But what the Spirit wants to do is take that one step further. Just one step further. And the Spirit wants to bring about an experience of the glorious truth you just claimed. You see? You can make the claim about what the Son has done, and that's great, you should do that. But then the Spirit wants to rush in and give you an experience of the truth that you claimed. You see, it's not enough for, for us to just have an intellectual understanding of the gospel and of the love of God. As Christians, often at the root of our insecurities is the fact that while we know about the love of Christ, we don't often know the love of Christ. 
We don't experience it enough. And that leads us to doubt and frustration. You see, if all we have are just the facts of Jesus' death and resurrection, we will go through life and still struggle a lot because we won't really believe what our intellect is telling us. Our hearts will doubt it. It won't seem real. Jesus was teaching us in the parable of the prodigal that the reality of God's love is often the very last thing to dawn on us. It's the last thing to dawn on us. You see, it did not even occur to the young son how much he was loved by the father. And that's what is promised here. The father is promising us the spirit. And the spirit helps us experience, not just know about the love of God. He helps us experience the extravagant love of the Father. Which leads us to point number three, what the promise is like. So what's it like when the Spirit comes? Verse 6. Verse 6. Because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, the word here in Greek translated calls out is very strong. It's a very strong Greek word. This is a loud and profound cry. Now, many of you have not gotten to know my son yet. You will as the weeks go go by here. Um, But our son, Jacob, he says mine and Catherine's names 24 hours a day. Daddy, 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 daddy. Mama, 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 mama. It's constant. I know you parents in the room know exactly what I'm talking about. It's just constant. And we've basically grown numb to it. Right? So, so most of the time he's doing that, we almost act like he's not even saying anything. We just keep going about our routine, doing our thing, we don't even flinch. He's just mama, 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 mama. And we're just going about doing our thing and not even worried about him. <laughs> but there are some times when he says our name and his tone changes. And Catherine and I drop everything. We drop everything and come running to him. That's the same word he normally says, but the tone, the tone is much different. It's much louder and more passionate. Parents, do you know the tone I'm talking about? This is the tone Paul is talking about. Just as a child cries out to his nearby parents, when he's scared, or when he's hurt, or when he's lost. The Holy Spirit causes our spirit to cry out 
in a different tone than normal to our Heavenly Father when we are scared, when we are hurt, when we are lonely, when we are lost. Why does the Spirit do this? So that we can know that our Daddy, our Heavenly Father is near and He loves us. The Spirit wants us to experience that. He wants us to experience the remarkable reality of nearness to our Creator. The word Abba here is baby talk. It's baby talk. It means Papa or Daddy. Just as a young child can simply and safely assume that his parents love him and are there for him. And never doubt the security of daddy's strong arms. The spirit causes Christians to have an overwhelming comfort and certainty in the closeness of God's presence. And the strength and the tenderness of his arms. There's no deep philosophy here. There's no heady theology. The Spirit just gives us the simple assurance of safety and the Father's love. This is exactly what happens in the story of the prodigal. Exactly what happened. The son is unsure of how the father will respond to him. He is insecure about his sins. He is uneasy about his place with the Father. And what does the Father do? He kisses him. He kisses him. This is a metaphor for what the Spirit does. The son has come back to the father and he's been rehearsing what he's going to say to the father, you know, the whole time. He's nervous, he's anxious. He doesn't know how the father will respond. And so he's been practicing, he's been practicing, he's been practicing, and he finally sees the father. You know, the father runs to him, he's been practicing, and he just spits out all the stuff he's been practicing all along the way. My mother used to do this to me as a kid. When I would just ramble, like get too, a little too excited and get in her face and just ramble, she'd take her finger and she'd just go like this to my lips. My wife does that to me, son. But this is essentially what the father does to the prodigal. The prodigal's got all these reasons. He's got all of his works righteousness. He said, I'm going to earn it. I'm going to justify my existence before you, Father. And he blabbers on, and the father sticks his finger in his son's, in his son's mouth. <laughs> he says, that's a good story, son. But you're my son. 
And that's not how this works. And he kisses him. He kisses him. This is what the Holy Spirit was sent to do. The Holy Spirit was sent to let us experience the overwhelming love and acceptance of the Father. That's why he's here. And the Spirit reminds you that it's not just anybody. It's not just anybody who loves you. It's not just anybody who has adopted you. Look at verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. <laughs> an heir. No, it's not just anyone who has adopted you. It is the greatest king who has adopted you. And as his child, you have full access to his entire kingdom. The full resources of his kingdom are available to you as his heir. As the prodigal son's father yelled to his servants. Do you remember what he yelled? He said, while the son was rambling. It just sticks his finger in his mouth. And he calls to the servants. And he says, quick! Bring the best robe for his back. Bring a ring for his finger and bring sandals for his feet. <laughs> for he is my son. He's my son. Which brings us to our last point, number four. How the promise comes. How the promise comes. This has essentially been a sermon about feelings. Is anyone feeling anything at the moment? It's essentially been a sermon about feelings, and that's dangerous, as you know. Um, I realize it's dangerous to talk about feelings in today's culture uh, because our culture bases truth on their feelings. Whatever I feel is right is what is true. That's what our culture says. But it's important to understand that the teaching tonight is the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. This is not a truth based on feelings, but a feeling based on truth. And what is the truth? Let's look at verses 4 and 5. What is the truth? Verse 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. 
Now, unfortunately, the prodigal son did not have a true elder brother. He did not. You see, in the first century, it was the firstborn son's job to keep the family together. It was the firstborn son's job to make sure the family stays together. And so a true elder brother would have run after his younger brother. And would, he would have looked in every pigsty on earth until he found him. And then at any cost, he would have brought him home. But the elder brother in this parable didn't care about his younger brother. He only cared about himself. And so, no, the younger brother in this story didn't have a true elder brother. But you do. You do. Listen. The deep feelings and emotions that the Spirit brings to your heart are rooted in truth. They're not just goosebumps. They are rooted in truth. The truth that while you did not love the Father, the Father loved you. And your true elder brother loved you. Unlike the prodigal's brother, your true elder brother left his father's home on a rescue mission. And while you were busy wallowing in that miserable pigsty of lostness, he found you. And at an infinite cost to himself, at the cost of his life, he brought you home. He brought you home. Folks, this isn't pie-in-the-sky emotionalism. Jesus shed his real blood on a real cross for your real sins. This is not a fable. This is history. This is truth. This is what happened objectively for you and for me. Don't you see? The glorious promise of the Spirit in verses 6 and 7 are built on verses 4 and 5. The internal work of the Spirit comes because of the external work of Jesus. Because of the external work of Jesus. What does this mean? It means that an experience of God does not come when we get the lighting just right in the sanctuary. An experience of God does not come because Sean played all our favorite songs. 
An experience of God does not come because the sermon met all of our personal felt needs. No. The Spirit comes because we preached Christ crucified. That's why the Spirit comes. Verses 6 and 7 are built on verses 4 and 5. We preached Christ crucified. And the Spirit came. The Spirit loves and is waiting to rush in. To rush in. The very moment your heart comes to the stunning realization that the Son of God took the position of a slave so that you could take the position of an adopted child of the Most High King. You want an experience of God? Good. The Spirit will provide it. But He will provide it at the foot of the cross. The Spirit is not interested in goosebumps. He's interested in bringing glory to the Son and bringing that glory to bear on your heart and your life. That's what He's interested in. That's the whole reason he was sent. And so as you reflect on what your precious Savior did for you, and you declare with your mouth the wondrous blessings given to you by his blood, the Spirit will come. Your emotions will stir. And your heart will rest. You see, the declaration of sonship brought about by the Lamb and the experience of sonship brought about by the Lamb go hand in hand. Declaration and experience go hand in hand. Declaring the truth of God's love poured out on the cross leads directly to an experience of God's love poured out in your heart. As an old hymn says, Sovereign, all-transcending Lord, holy mystery, feared, adored. In your mighty Son we see all your love's humility. Christ the Lion, now the Lamb gives himself the great I am. Christ, the Prince of Paradise, dies a slaughtered sacrifice. Christ, the victor in defeat, makes your victory all complete. As he prays his final breath, sovereign life now swallows death. In his conquering strength we see deep and glorious mystery. Glowing from your heart above, 
holy, fierce, all-conquering love. Let's pray together. Father, we are only here tonight because of your holy, fierce, all-conquering love for us. Shown to us with perfect clarity in the suffering of your Son. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. And please, please, help us seek him. Help us seek him, not just knowledge about him, but to have this deep, real experience of him. Bring us back to the cross, Father. Bring us back to where redemption is found so that we might truly see, truly see your love displayed for us on a cruel Roman cross, a cross that should have been ours, a cross reserved for us. But somehow your son took our place on that old rugged cross. And so what can we say? What can we say other than Father? We need Jesus. We need Jesus, and we only need Jesus.